So kind of did a, a, a bit of, of a pause in our series, um, but we're, we're continuing it tonight. And we're, as if you've, if you've been here the past uh, two weeks, you, you know that we're looking at the series of uh, Jesus and the Jewish festivals. Now, Jesus and the gospel doesn't engage, at least in, the, in what we have, with every single festival. He, he certainly would have. We just don't have the accounts. Uh, but we do have him going to Jerusalem in a couple key festivals, and we'll be looking at those. But all of these are important because I would say, if you're a reader of the gospel, if nothing else, this sort of thing gives context. It gives, it gives background. Um, imagine if I went to another uh, another country that was unfamiliar with the celebration of Western Christmas and the concept of Christmas trees, this kind of medieval, you know, European idea. And, and I used it as some sort of a story or an example to illustrate something. They would have no, why do you have a tree in your house, right? That's bizarre. Like, why are you decorating a tree, right? You know, just all these things just wouldn't connect. You know what I mean by that? And so as we look at cultural context, as, as we look at um, a literary context of even just the, the Old Testament Torah, it helps us when we come with our Western modern eyes to the person of Jesus, who is not a Westerner, not a modern, and we, we, we listen to things he says, it, it gives greater context to it. And so we can mine more out of scripture. Does that make sense? So that's kind of why we're doing this. Um, I, I'm not one of these people that thinks... All Christians should celebrate all of the uh, festivals and feasts. In fact, some of them you should not. <laughs> the one we're looking at tonight is a great example uh, of one that I would say, no, you, we, we, we should not practice this because of the fulfillment in Jesus. Others of them would say, wonderful, celebrate it, it's fantastic. So I have a very nuanced, I would say, um, understanding of the role that these play, even just in our own, in our own life. Um, I think it was uh, Rich. Rich, are you here this evening? Yes. Uh, last week, Rich, two weeks ago, Rich came up to me and he said, there's, there's this great little story. And it's funny, in my reading this week, I actually came across that very story. And I thought, okay, Rich wasn't just making it up. That's, that's good to hear. No, but Rich said, there's, there's this great little story about the, the role and the significance of the Jewish calendar for the Jewish people. And it's kind of... Um, somewhat maybe of an apocryphal story, but it's the story of this Russian Jew who is going to be sent off to the gulags, these internment camps, prison camps, um, and he knows he's going he's gonna to go there, and so he goes to his local rabbi, and he asks the question, he says, I'm, I'm going off to this isolated prison camp. There's the possibility, though, that, that I might be able to sneak in with me one, one book. Uh, what should it be? And, you know, the rabbi could have, could have said, well, the, you know, a prayer book or certainly, you know, the Bible. But instead, the, the rabbi's response was, he said, take a Jewish calendar with you. He said, if you know you are celebrating the various holidays and keeping the days of communal mourning and communal fasting, this is all, all on the calendar, he says, together with the rest of the Jewish community dispersed throughout the world, you have maintained your identity. I love that. Because see, that's the core thing, right? Maintaining identity, that I don't lose my identity when I'm in another place. This is Israel's challenge, right? They go to Babylon, what's the challenge? Will we lose our identity? And I thought that was a fascinating 
picture because today, even you know, practicing Jews today, they're very uh, divergent in their beliefs. The one thing they all have in common though, and that's the kind of the punch of this story, despite all of their disputes, this calendar is universally accepted. Now the calendar's changed over time, but you get the idea of it. It's this thing that kind of maintains identity. Um, Gary Burge, he is a uh, seminary professor in Michigan. Um, he, he wrote something about the whole concept of how calendars, cycles of time, have deep influence on who we are as people. Let me, let me read this, these words for you. He says, I envy the discipline of the Jewish calendar cycle because it provides us with a different understanding of time. And he says, here's what I mean. And I, I think you'll, you can totally resonate with this. I could. He says, my own life has an annual rhythm that is dedicated by a set of values that come entirely from the secular world. Late summer is the beginning of school, new clothes. Autumn brings Thanksgiving, the pilgrim story. Christmas is the great festival that has been almost entirely overwhelmed by consumerism and Santa. Easter is the celebration of spring, and summer is bookended by Memorial Day and Labor Day. We also have a weekly festival, the weekend. Friday nights, Saturdays, and Sundays each have their own meanings uh, dictated by the need for leisure. Even the dreaded Monday morning has its own set of coded responses. And who doesn't know what Black Friday means, he says, right? When I read that, I was like, yeah, that's my year. Like that's, you know, my kids go to school at this time. They're off at spring break. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying, do you see how that, that, that gives a certain sort of coded experience to life and how you think about rhythm and seasons and all that? And he ends by saying, uh, yet none of this speaks to the rhythms that I desire, which is interesting. He said in the Jewish cycle, his own kind of view is, the organizing center of the calendar is the mighty acts of God. And he points out Passover, and, and we'll talk about these as we go, Sinai, and the journey to the promised land. And within each cycle, the story of salvation, it's told and retold and told and retold. Uh, if, if you were here last week, you might've picked one of these up. If you didn't, you can get it this week. It's at the back. Um, the back of it gives the, the calendar, the Jewish calendar, as well as our Western calendar, kind of in the center. And then these, these different nine feasts and festivals and kind of where they land on there and that sort of thing. So this might be helpful as we go um, and where we pick up. The biblical new year, back in the Bible, um, begins like right, um, right before Passover. So it's, it's like in the spring. The, after the exile, they kind of change some things. So, you know, when they celebrate Rosh Hashanah, that's like September. That's a totally different time. That, so that's not necessarily the biblical New Year, but that's what the current modern New Year is. And we just kind of decided we're going to start with that kind of modern New Year and work our way around the circle. And so those ones, as you see on there, um, three of them are the most significant. They're the ones last week that we said these are, these are the um, Hag festival or pilgrimage festival. These are the ones that biblically they're supposed to go to a specific center of worship and that becomes Jerusalem, centralized there. And you need to do it there. You need to celebrate it there. And of course, those are tabernacles. We're going to be talking about that one next week. 
Passover, which we're more familiar with, and then Pentecost. Those were the three, again, what we said last week, oftentimes Jews will refer to them as foot festivals because you're on your feet, you're walking for them, you're going to a different place. And these, different, these seven festivals were given by Yahweh to the Israelites, and you can find it in Leviticus 23. That's where we were two weeks ago. Now, again, as we think about, and we'll mention this a few different times as we go throughout the series, think about the concept of when God, and I know we said this two weeks ago, but I think it's important to reinforce, think about when God instituted these festivals. It was after a period of 400 years of every single day is the same and monotony. And we said a couple weeks ago, we said, do you remember what that was like during this last season if your schedule suddenly was different? And you asked the question like, what day is it? Because I did that all the time. I would say to the, or I'm like writing something out. I'm like, is it Monday? Is it Friday, I have no clue what day it was because the days were blending into one and th there's no healthy rhythm in that sort of life. I mean, I felt that I, I felt disoriented. I just, I didn't like it, it was yuck. Um, I was less effective because there weren't those regular rhythms. So what God does is he takes Israel after 400 years of no days off, <laughs> slavery in Egypt. One of the very first things he does is he says, I'm gonna give you healthy rhythms. And these are these seven festivals, annual festivals that I want you to celebrate. And of course, there's the weekly festival of the Sabbath, and this is going to give you rhythm. But he does even a lot more than that, that we'll talk about here. Oh, let me pull this up. Sorry, I thought I forgot to turn this on. I'm going to do a couple scriptures and uh, go to a couple places here. For instance, um, when you think about, can you see that there? It's a little small, isn't it? Um, well, that's probably about as big as I can make without missing some of that stuff. This is, I think, an interesting, these are the three foot festivals, the three pilgrimage festivals. And it's interesting what, what God does is God, God will pick a normal festival time, like a normal um, you know, reaping of the harvest or whatever, and then he like maps onto it something about their sacred story. It's like he's hooking into, does that make sense? God's hooking into something real natural. So for instance, Passover, it's this early harvest, um, but it's also the time when the, the new lambs are born. And so the natural thing there, he sort of hooks into is to say, okay, this is gonna be a time, remember the escape from Egypt and what allowed you to escape the 10th plague? was the sacrifice of the lamb, and um, there were the plagues and the, the sea going through the sea and the manna. And so all of those things are sort of brought back into that moment. And it's, let's relive those, let's experience those, let's think about those, let's participate in those, because it's hooking into the story of how God has intersected in my life. Or Pentecost, this is the end harvest, the, the cereal um, sacrifice. This celebrates their arrival at Mount Sinai after they were rescued. It's, it celebrates the entering into a covenant with Yahweh. And then it ultimately the receiving of, of the law. And so they want to relive those things and think about those things and practice those things. And then the third one, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Um, this, is, this is the time when the most, um, what would you say, uh, Valuable fruit is out there. You've got the pomegranates and you've got um, uh, 
olives and all, they're, they're, they're very valuable. And so oftentimes people will actually stay out in their field to make sure no one steals them. <laughs> and they would actually build these little huts. And so God says, you know when you do that? I want you all to go out and stay in the huts. And I want you to think about the time when Israel was going through the desert and you didn't have homes. And guess what you stayed in? They kind of looked like huts. <laughs> and so he's, he's hooking into a natural agricultural moment in their time. And he's saying, I want to infuse that and weave into that a sacred moment between you and me. I think that's genius. I think that's brilliant as I, as I think about this. And imagine if your whole year, imagine if your whole year was built around how you've journeyed with God in the past. You ever thought about that before? I mean, I wonder if I were to ask you this question. If I were to ask you, how has God altered your story? And I said, I'll give you five minutes, jot down bullet points. How has God altered your story? What would you write? And then here's another question, a follow-up. If you could jot down some bullet points, a question is, do you in any way rehearse that? Ever. <laughs> um, do you know the date that you committed your life to Christ? You know the date maybe you got baptized, maybe your kids got baptized? Do you, do you remember a date where God answered that one prayer that you've been just, it had been on your heart and your mind for weeks, months, years? Do you remember that time when God met you at like the darkest place in your life? Or the time when you were, you were so disinterested and you just got your attention like that? <laughs> like, do you remember any of those? What would it look like because God seems to think this is important, to, to actually rehearse that regularly, cyclically, in a year. And I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not even sure. I don't do that very well, to be honest. As I was thinking about this, I thought, man, I don't, I don't do that. I do the Christmas and spring break, and I've got that rhythm down really well. But I, I don't do this very well. So what would that look like in our own lives? And as I mentioned, for readers of the gospel... Um, Jesus was an observant Jew. Jesus was practicing and engaging in these rhythms, these festivals. And then again, we'll come across those touch points in future weeks as we're going. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at the one that comes right after the, the Feast of Trumpets. We're, we're kind of skipping over that one for the sake of me missing last week and all that sort of thing. But um, the trumpet sort of introduces the Day of Atonement that comes up. Day of Atonement is something we hear a lot about. Um, what I want to do is read through Leviticus 16, which I will probably never preach on Leviticus 16 the rest of my life again. You probably will never hear a sermon on Leviticus 16 <clears throat> the rest of your life. Um, we were talking in the other room, and we were talking about some of these things that go on in there. And, and uh, and some said, why have you never read that in the Bible? I said, well, it's Leviticus 16. They go, that's why I've never read that in the Bible, right? <laughs> because usually if, if you've read through the Bible, you get to Leviticus 1, 2, 3, something, then you kind of go like, I'm going to move on to Samuel or, you know, something along those lines. But uh, this is, so when we think about the Day of Atonement, this is where we get it from. Leviticus 16 is the place where God institutes and says, here's what I want you to do on this Day. And so we're just going to walk through the chapter. We're going to be pausing at a few places because there are some interesting things. There are a couple weird things. Um, and I'm, I'm, I've, you know, I've been getting used to the idea that weird's okay 
and, and, and weird sometimes the most interesting thing in there. So let's kind of start reading here. Can you see that all right? Okay. So it says, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron uh, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat uh, that is on the ark so that he may not die. So we get the indication his two sons did this, um, meaning you can't just come anytime you want and, and just anyone you want coming into the holy place. Let me give you a kind of a picture it's a, hopefully you can kind of see that there. This gives you an artist rendition of what the tabernacle, as we're talking about it tonight, because everything tonight centers around this, this tabernacle. Um, there are three sections that are important. There's the ground all around outside. Okay, that's like, that, that, that's the safest place, the, the least hot spot <laughs> of the presence of God. You can, you can come in there depending on certain cleanliness things, that sort of thing. Inside the tent... It's about 45 feet long. Um, the first 30 feet are called the holy place. The last 15, and it's a 15 cube, 15 tall, 15 wide, 15, just sort of a little kind of thing too. When you read about in the book of Revelation, when it talks about the new creation and it measures it out and it's a cube, it's not literally saying it's a cube, it's saying to the Jewish mind, they go, oh, that's the hot spot of God. <laughs> that's God's presence, because that's what it was. That's what it was in the temple. That's what it was in the tabernacle. Um, here's maybe a slightly easier picture as you look down. So the outside place, kind of the outer courts, then you have the holy place. That's the first entrance, first room that you would walk into. And the, so priests can go in there, any priests, as long as it's the right time, that sort of thing. Only the high priest can go into the top of the box, the 15 cube area. That's the most holy place. Again, that is that hot spot of God. This is the space that the two sons of Aaron apparently went into, and they, they were struck dead. They were not to do that. And so um, he says here, let me go, to the, go back to... Uh, let's see here. He says, uh, for, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. So he's going to describe it now. These are, these are, this is what it takes to do this. With a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now, this is interesting here. Um, Listen to it. It's a part that's in yellow. Listen to the clothing. This is kind of an interesting thing. If you've ever seen pictures of like the high priest, this is different. He um, says, he shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. Now, a question immediately rises is, this is not the normal outfit of the priest when, even the high priest, when he's doing things at the temple. His normal vestments are made of pure gold, very rare uh, gems uh, all over, and then woven together with this material that's like beautifully colorful and dyed and all that sort of thing. So the question to, to the reader who would have seen this is that, what, why is it, 
Why is it such, such a different thing? All the, all the beauty is gone. Let me, let me read for you this kind of little story here. Um, if you know who Oz Guinness is, um, brilliant uh, author, kind of cultural critic, um, he wrote a book entitled The Call. And in it, he tells the story about um, Empress Zeta. She was the, the last living person in the Habsburg um, royalty. And uh, Time Magazine, she died in 1989. And Time Magazine ran a story a few years later talking about her funeral. And I thought it was fascinating how he talked about it. Let me read uh, Os Guinness's words to you. <clears throat> he says, um, it was told in People Magazine in April 1990, the last empress of the Habsburg royalty, which goes all the way back to the Holy Roman Empire, her name was Zeta. She had died, uh, she was 96 years old, and her body was going to be taken on a horse-drawn carriage with all the royalty attendants and so on. He said, my wife and I visited those churches after I read about the story, and she was placed on the carriage with six black horses and all the fine uniforms and 8,000 men and women in black following this horse-drawn carriage. Clip-clop, clip-clop, over the cobblestones of that lovely city was Vienna, Vienna, Austria. Then they arrived in the church where she was going to be entombed. And the, according to the magazine, People Magazine, said that the old custom was followed. I think this is fascinating. The leader of this funeral procession comes and knocks on the door of St. Capuchin, the church, and he asks, and as he knocks on the Capuchin church, as he knocks on the door, he says, it's total silence. The 8,000 people behind, the others watching, not a word. Who goes there is said from behind the door. And the man speaks out loudly amidst the echo surrounding the quietness there. Zita, queen of Bohemia, Dalmatia, Croatia, Slavonia, Galatia, queen of Jerusalem, grand duchess of Tuscany and Krakow. The voice comes from inside. I do not know her. Silence. Second knock. Who goes there? Zita, Empress of Austria, Queen of Hungary. The voice comes back from inside. I do not know her. Third knock. Who goes there? Zita, a sinning mortal. And then the bolts unlocked and the doors open up and her body is brought through. It's interesting, the priest's clothing in chapter, in verse four here, everything's plain white, it's plain linen, it's holy, but it's utterly simple. And what's fascinating is all of the, uh, the regular uh, costly elements, the gold, the gems, that sort of thing, um, he's stripped of all signs of status. The high priest is stripped of any sign of his status that would allow him entrance in that moment when coming before the living God. And just thinking about that as I, as I read about that, and I, as I thought, what is God communicating to them? Like, what is he wanting them to get? Because God's rule specific, right? Like, you wear this, you don't wear that, you come at this time, not that time. This, he's not capricious. What is he trying to communicate to them, what's he trying to pound into their minds? And it made me wonder, I wonder if I have to remind myself, if we have to remind ourselves that 
God is not impressed <laughs> by my social status, uh, by my professional achievements, by my academic, fill, fill in the blank, right? Whatever you've succeeded at that you feel good about, and that's, that's okay to feel good about things. God's not impressed. He's pleased, maybe. But nothing puts him at a place where, ooh, I want you on my team, right? That's not the way it works here. So there's a humility required when coming before the true God. Uh, verse 5, we read this, And he, this is the high priest, he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent. Um, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one of them for the Lord or Yahweh, the other for Azazel. Um, so he takes two lots. On one of the lots, it is written on there for Yahweh, proper name. On the other one, it's written for Azazel, <clears throat> proper name. And they're cast, <clears throat> and one of them is determined to be Az the goat for Azazel. One is determined to be the goat for Yahweh. Verse 9, And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord, for Yahweh, and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make atonement over it that it might be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, who in the world is Azazel? <laughs> okay, we'll get to it, but just wait. We're going to come back to it here. Um, verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and uh, two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil. He's going into the 15 foot cube area and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy, that's the ark, that is over the testimony or the covenant, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat, on the east side, that's the side it would have been facing, and in front of the mercy seat, so basically on the ground, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So the Day of Atonement, what's interesting, blood is never applied to people on the Day of Atonement. Again, we tend to often import New Testament thinking because the book of Hebrews says things like, the blood of Christ is applied to us, right? And we sort of tend to bring that back here, but we can't do that. The Day of Atonement does not function exactly as we oftentimes think because it's never applied, again, directly to any people at all. So this, this day, the Day of Atonement, it is not about forgiving all sins. That is not the way it functioned. It was not about forgiving all sins. In fact, it couldn't do that. In fact, the majority of this day 
didn't have to do with people's sins. It actually had to do with purging the sacred space and the sacred um, elements that were involved in the tabernacle so that people could enter into sacred space. It's like purging all, purging all of the dysfunction so that they can enter and bring their offering or whatever that might be. It's interesting that if you go back to the chapter before this, if you're interested, um, you can read the whole chapter talks about ritual impurity. Not, it's not moral issues. It's not like you did anything bad. And this is really, really hard for like Western minds to wrap our head around because it's like ritual impurity. So it's, it's not immoral. No, it's not immoral. It's ritually or ceremonially impure or pure in some way. And so there are things in that chapter that talk about if you lose blood or semen or different things like that. And again, you're reading just like, what is that about? Well, in the ancient mind, those things were thought of as, well, that's, that's what sustains life. So if you lose some of that, you're like 98%, right? <laughs> you're, you're not full of the elements that sustain life. And so you're, you're lesser in some ways. You've, you've lost that. You're, it's not to teach you that you're sinful. It's that you're incomplete. And you're coming to a God who is complete. He is not limited in any single way. So the day of atonement, and again, there's no, there's no moral um, condemnation applied to someone who's ritually impure. A woman has her menstrual cycle. She's ritually impure for a certain number of days. There's nothing immoral about that. She just has to wait a certain number of days, take a bath, do this. If a man does something, in fact, you can't go through life without becoming ritually impure. Priests had to dispense of bodies. You touch a dead body, you're ritually impure. <laughs> Part of a priest's job is to become ritually impure. Does that make sense? It's not immoral. And that's what we have to kind of like distinguish those things from. But God's creating categories. He wants them to understood, understand, not you're really messed up. <laughs> you're very human. And God is very not human. He's creating these categories of how I think about myself and God and my access to God. So the Day of Atonement, again, it's not about, and it's certainly not about forgiving, you know, grievous sins or anything like that. In fact, most intentional sins, um, there was no sacrifice for. Uh, you break the Sabbath, commit adultery, murder, kidnap, it's death sentence. I mean, there's no sacrifice for that. <laughs> Sometimes it's uh, exile. You have to leave the community, which is about as bad as death is. You steal something, there's restitution, but it's not about making a sacrifice to repair that. And so as you read that, you might kind of like, well, that kind of seems like a, not a perfect system. Yes, exactly. That's what you're supposed to think. <laughs> it's not a perfect system. The, you're starting to see limits to it. You're starting to see pieces that, well, it seems like it could be fuller. seems like it could be better in some ways. So let's go to verse 15. This gets us to kind of the weird part. Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. Remember the two goats that are brought from the people's herds? He shall kill the goat of the sin offering. This is the one that uh, the uh, lot fell to. It's at for Yahweh. <clears throat> that is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil 
and do with its blood as he had done with the blood of the bull. Remember, it's not applied to people. It's applied to space and objects because it's purifying. It's purging the sacred space. Sprinkle it over the ark and in front of the ark. Thus he shall make, he's, look at what he's doing, making atonement for the holy place. And atonement, probably a better word is purging. He's purging all the junk that, that the people's in, maybe accidental impurities that they were unaware of has brought to the holy place. Because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions, all their sins, and again, these are only unintentional, only unintentional sins, not anything they intended to do. Um, and so he shall do to the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house, for all the assembly there. Uh, so again, he's, he's purging the sacred space because that gives access to the presence of God. Uh, verse Verse 18, uh, then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, the altar, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns, like the corners of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the un cleanliness of the people of Israel. Verse 20, and when he has made uh, an, an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Okay, so think of it this way. Um, <clears throat> the, the day of atonement is, it's like hitting the reboot button on your computer if you have one. <laughs> Okay, um, it, it goes back to all the original settings. Um, it, it's, that's, what he, that's what the high priest is doing to the um, objects in the temple or in the tabernacle. It's, it's, it's purging the contamination. It's purging the defilement. The day of atonement, it was like setting the tabernacle back to its original pristine state so that it can be used for another year. Um, anyone in here watch the old show Lost? Remember, raise your hand if you, if you watch Lost. You're embarrassed to say it. Oh, ending was horrible. Just stop at season whatever, seven or, yeah, don't even watch the last episode, so stupid. Um, do you remember when they got to the, if, if you haven't seen this, then this won't mean, you can just go to sleep for a second. Remember when they get to the island and they, they, they find the, um, what's it called? The thing down on the ground. It's a, uh, it's like this bunker deep into the ground. And there's a guy down there who they find has been there for like a long time. And he's a little kooky. He's a little weird. And he, he has to keep resetting. I think it's daily. There's a timer. And and, you can, and you're like, what, what's he doing? And, and you kind of get the idea that you realize that he believes he has to reset the timer um, on this or else it'll just like destroy the island or something. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. Something bad will happen, right? Um, and so there's a big debate, you know, maybe we should just let it go. No, maybe we should. But that, like, that's kind of the idea with the Day of Atonement. It's an annual reset 
button that puts everything back to its original condition so that it, so that it's, it doesn't sort of self-destruct, you know, so to speak. Basically, God's space, it's always in danger of them corrupting it and him leaving. In fact, that's what we see in the exile. The prophets, when they talk about Yahweh, Yahweh says, I'm leaving. I'm taking another step. I'm going. He's basically saying, you're so impure that my space has become impure. I can't live there. And so I will leave. I will exit. That's, that's kind of the idea of what's going on with this day of atonement. Okay, verse 21. <clears throat> and Aaron shall lay both uh, his hands on the head of the live goat. This is the one for Azazel. And confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness, meaning he's like, that's his job. He's ready to go. Uh, verse 22, the goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come to the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he had put on when he went into the holy place and leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water. Why is that? What has he just touched? He's just touched the goat, right? Um, in, in water and his garments come out, off, uh, burnt offering and burnt offering the people, make atonement for himself and the people, verse 25. Uh, and the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. He who lets the goat go, the guy who was like already, that's his job, he's running it out there, pushing it out there. Uh, the one who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp. So we realize he's become ritually impure in this process as well. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and the dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes. So he's become uh, ceremonially unclean as well. And bathe his body and afterwards he may come into the camp. Now what is this goat for Azazel? <laughs> Um, if you have, uh, I love the NIV translation. This is not a condemnation of it. In fact, I use it probably more as much as any other one. If you have a, a translation like the NIV and others, it will say the scapegoat. <clears throat> Basically, it will take the, the, the name Azazel, because it, it's just consonants in Hebrew, and it'll break it up into a, a couple words that is the goat that's sent away. And some translations do that. Um, the text really, that's not an honest translation of the phrase. It's, it's with Hebrew parallelism, the exact phrase, the goat for Yahweh, the goat for Azazel, it has to be a proper name. Verse 26, doesn't even make sense if you use that. So he, he'll take the goat to the place where the goat you take away, just like it grammatically doesn't make sense. This is a proper name. And that's weird. And a lot of people don't like that. So you want to make it feel less weird. What is going on with this? So who is Azazel? In the Israelite mind, Azazel is a demonic entity who is associated with the wilderness. Um, the wilderness is 
Azazel's domain. Um, it's, it's the bad place. It's the anti-Eden is what the wilderness is. If you go back to, and we talked about this a few weeks, I won't go into it in depth, but um, last semester, we talked about the whole idea of uh, Deuteronomy 32 teaches this idea that when God punishes Babel, he says, I, I divorce you all. You remember that when we talked about that? And he says, he, he assigned them to other Elohim, other spiritual beings. And we find later that these spiritual beings rebelled. They didn't steward these people well. Instead, they, they sought their worship. And so that's who these other gods are. There are these other supernatural beings that God created, which have rebelled, much like humanity has rebelled. And, but remember, God has given them different areas. He's given them a lot. You know, we get to the book of Daniel. Why is it that Daniel says the prince of Persia? Where does that come about? Because well, he, know, he knows Deuteronomy 32. <laughs> he knows there's a spiritual being which is responsible for that area, but which is in rebellion against Yahweh. And so that's why we look at Israel. Why does he keep calling them? They're my portion. Yahweh says that. Yahweh says they're my inheritance. He says, I want you to be separate. In fact, I'm going to give you your own separate land. So here, Yahweh is taking Israel through the wilderness, not to it, to the new Eden, the land flowing with milk and honey. That's Eden language. He's giving them this new land, taking them there. And so a question kind of keep, you know, comes up real fast. So is Yahweh saying, is Yahweh instructing the Israelites to, well, go make a sacrifice to that false God. Maybe just he won't be quite as mad, you know? Is he, is he telling them to do idolatry? No, not at all. Only one of the goats is sacrificed. Which one? It's, it's the one to Yahweh. That one is sacrificed. The other goat, he is, he is not sacrificed. The second goat, the priest lays the hands on the, on the head of the goat, symbolically transferring the sin, the iniquities, all the guilt, everything that would defile sacred space, right? And would be an offense to Yahweh. And it's transferred to the goat. And where is the goat sent off? To Azazel's territory, to anti-Eden. What's, what's, what's the logic behind that? That's where sin belongs, that's where impurity belongs. It doesn't belong in Yahweh's camp. It doesn't belong in sacred space. It has to be set apart. And so the ancient Israelites understood, okay, this area, they associated it with demonic forces. And it's not just them. Again, if you remember a number of weeks ago when we talked about this, do you remember when Jesus sometimes cast out demons? He said multiple times. He said, when a demon is cast out, do you remember what he said? It's weird. He said, they go into arid, dry places. What's he talking about? Jesus is talking about this? <laughs> He's saying that's where these demonic forces have some sort of access. Where does Jesus encounter Satan for the temptation? That's not accidental. I mean, to the Jewish mind, that's not accidental. It's in the wilderness. That's where Azazel is. Um, if you look in the... Um, a lot of the Second Temple Jewish writings, the Dead Sea Scrolls and their others, they talk about, Azazel is not mentioned anywhere in the rest of the Old Testament. 
but it is written, talked about in Jewish literature. In fact, one person, one uh, writing at the uh, Dead Sea Scroll says, Azazel is the, is the first tempter in Genesis. That's who they associate it with. But whatever Azazel is, whoever it is, it's, it's this demonic, uh, malevolent spirit that is hostile to Yahweh, created by him, limited by him, but has been given this certain amount of power for a certain amount of time. And so um, it, now if you're kind of going like, this is just, what are you talking about? This is bizarre. Um, YouTube something when you get home and it will do a better job explaining it for you. Um, YouTube the phrase, uh, where is it? I think I have it here. Uh, well, it's, I don't have it here. It's uh, who, who and what is Azazel? Michael Heiser. Um, if, if you've read Michael Heiser's book, the, the Unseen Realm, I think it's like page 173. It's somewhere around there. He, he, he talks about it. Dig more there. It's weird. It's super weird. It's fascinating, but it's, 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 in, the, it's in the book. So we have to kind of hit it and see what it is there. Um, verse 33, real fast here. <clears throat> verse 33. Um, he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, for the altar. Um, uh, where am I at? I got lost. And he shall make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever to you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in that year, remember it has to be repeated, because of all of their sins. And Aaron did this. Now the day of atonement, should show us that this system, it's so limited. Well, how is it limited? Well, think about, think about this. The old Levitical system, you could have access to God, well, a little bit, only if you're a priest. Not any priest, only if you're one priest. Not any time, one day a year, right? It's showing the narrowness of the access. There is access, that's good, it's not cut off. But the access, it's so narrow for you to have access to the, to the high God, to the one who created everything. And see, this isn't something that's a shock to God. He's aware of the limitations of the system. In fact, as you see here in Hosea 6.6, 6, he says this, I desire steadfast love. That's, that's the phrase chesed. That's the word that means like believing loyalty or Covenant faithfulness, it has to do with your heart kind of thing. I desire covenant love or believing loyalty, not sacrifice. Meaning if it's just the, like the Levitical system, that, that's not what I'm going for if your heart's not in it. Or look at um, Ezekiel uh, 11 verse 19. He says, and I will give them, uh, give them, one heart and a new spirit and that I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from the heart of flesh uh, and, and, and give them a heart of flesh. God is keenly aware that what's wrong is not the system. <laughs> it's the heart of the people. That even when we're given a system, even with the limitations, the real problem lies underneath. It's this internal problem with all of us. I would encourage you, in fact, this week, read Hebrews chapter 9. If you're looking for something to do for your devotion this week, New Testament, book of Hebrews, 
chapter 9, and what the author does is he says things like, like this sort of thing. He says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary, a tabernacle set up, and then he talks about a bunch of the stuff in there. He said, when everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer court. This guy's been reading Leviticus 16, right? But only the high priest entered in the inner room and only once a year and never without blood and all this. Here's the biggest problem. See what it says there in green? All the stuff they brought in, the gifts and sacrifices, what's the one limitation? It wasn't able to clear the consciences of the worshiper. It couldn't touch it. None of those sacrifices, none of those ordinances, none of those, none of those things could get to your conscience. And that's, that's your heart, your emotions, your will, your spirit, whatever you, whatever you want to say. But then he says, but when Christ came as a high priest of good things that are now already, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not the one made by human hands. And he says he entered the most holy 15 by 15 cube, but not the physical one. God's, God's space, the Father's space. Once for all, it's, he's not like in Lost where he has to keep hitting the button. It's done. It's completed, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And then finally, as it says down there at the very bottom, um, and cleansing our conscience. Man, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And the book of Hebrews, he just keeps going, it's so much better. <laughs> it's so much better, you guys. Thankfully, we had something before. This is so much better. It's not a narrow entrance. It's super broad. All are invited in. I mean, it's, that's why it's so much different, actually, than the Day of Atonement. <laughs> the Day of Atonement is just... It's, I'm glad it's there because there's something. But it was pointing to this final thing that Jesus would materialize and experience. It kind of reminds me of, a, there's a story that I remember hearing um, John Hunter. He, he was a evangelist teacher and uh, he, he and his wife would travel. His wife, they were British. And um, they went to Westmont College. Some of you might know that. And he tells the story that he said uh, his wife, Christine, wanted some tea. You know, they're British. You know, British people and their tea, right? And so he told the, one of the students working behind the counter, Christine would like some tea. Could you get her some? So she went back behind the counter and she got a styrofoam cup. And she turned on the faucet. She got it real hot. Put her finger underneath it till it was real hot. Filled up the cup, turned up you know, went and got a tea bag and brought it over to her. And he said, it looked like she was handing her like a bag of tea and like surgical syringe. And he said, you Americans don't know how to make tea at all. Like, like you're just horrible at it. And he said, what you do is you get a kettle and a pot and you put water in the kettle and you get it rolling, boiling hot. And then you pour that into the, the pot and you put a cozy on it. It's like a little sweater for the thing and you cover it up. And then you put some more water back on in the kettle and you get it rolling, boiling hot again. And once it's rolling, boiling hot, you take the key from the, or the water from the uh, pot and you dump it out. Only reason it was even there is just to get the pot hot <laughs> so that when you put the new water in, it didn't cool it down. And then you get an infuser and you put tea, actual tea in this infuser. And then you, you pour the water into the pot, the rolling, boiling hot. And then you put the infuser in there, you cover it up. And he says, and something magical happens that you can't get from dipping your finger in a cup. <laughs> he says, it infuses the water. And all of a sudden the water, he said, 
in just a few minutes, he said, it doesn't look like water anymore. It doesn't smell like water anymore. And it doesn't taste like water anymore because it's utterly infused. And I would suggest that that's just a weak picture of what Christ has done in the true atonement, not a narrow thing, but he actually has the ability to get through to my conscience. And I don't know about you guys, but that's the part of me that is the most broken. It's, it's the part that I'm most ashamed of. But he says, I can, I can work on it. I can fix it. I can cleanse it. I can purge it. The, my blood, it's not bulls and goats. That, that won't get to the heart. Mine can. And he pours that out for us. And that's what we have in the offer of Jesus. That's the story that I need to recite and remind myself of more than annually. So much better than just a day of atonement. This is eternal atonement. And one way that we remind ourselves of, of that is we have a weekly rhythm here. We take communion together. And that's a way that we remind ourselves of the sacred story. It's something latched into, mapped onto our gathering. So during this next song, I'll, I'll invite you to come to one of the locations. If you've been around here, you know how to do this. Grab it, take it back to your seat, hold on to it. You can stand, engage in worship. And then once we've all gotten it, I'll come back up and we'll take it together. <clears throat> you know, the reason I love the words that we just sang that song about our shame is undone. That's the conscience part. <laughs> That's the part that nothing could access except Christ's blood. And because Jesus entered that true sanctuary, not with the blood of bulls and goats and all that, but with his own, he made sacrifice for us, cleansing our consciences, ridding us of shame, thank God, and gave us direct access to the very presence of God needing nothing more but his name. <laughs> That's an awesome thing. So we celebrate that rhythm. We take the bread, his body broken for us, giving us entrance. Let's take the bread. And the cup he called his blood in a new covenant shed for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have done so much God, we thank you for those, these shadows, road markers that we have in the old covenant, pointing to what you were going to more fully and more perfectly do. Thank you that you have accepted us, that you have wiped away our shame. We can stand before the creator of the universe with confidence, knowing we are loved and accepted. God, would you breathe that into our hearts more fully this week? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. You guys, thanks so much for being here. Uh, thanks for engaging. Uh, love being with you every week and love you guys. So see you next Wednesday.